Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. This is a show that explores individual and interpersonal dynamics, helping you become your best self while making the most of your business and the people in it. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Enjoy the show. This week, I am joined by Mary Herman, Managing Director of the Global Executive Coaching Practice at BPI Group. At BPI, Mary leads an extensive team of professional coaches in the U.S. and abroad. Mary and her team are focused on helping organizations drive change and deliver results through proven best practices in leadership and executive team development. Mary has more than 25 years of experience consulting with organizations around the world in the areas of executive coaching, leadership development, and team development. She has refined her own unique style of authentic, results-driven coaching and advising from working with C-level executives and boards of directors in various industries. In this conversation, we get into the purpose of executive coaching and what executive coaching really is. And Mary talks about how leaders and teams can set the right ground rules from the beginning to help smooth out a lot of trouble areas down the road. She also talks about coaching in general and what the skills are that you need to really be an effective coach of other people. Hint, listening is a big part of it. It's a great conversation. I found it very helpful for myself. I hope you do as well. Here is Mary Herman. And we are live. Mary, welcome to the show. I'm excited to get into all things coaching with you today. Thank you, O'Brien, for having me. I'm thrilled to have time together. To start out, I think we'll just sort of start at the beginning. Would you pitch BPI Group and the work that you do? BPI Group is a global HR consultancy focused on igniting bold futures. And we do that in three different ways. We support executives in coaching them one-on-one. We also work with their teams. So what we call team optimization. Our leadership acceleration practice builds pipeline for high potential leaders, women, and underrepresented groups. And then finally, the third component is career transition outplacement. And we do that at the highest levels in organizations in retirement readiness programs, executive advisory, and then general outplacement services as well. So in all three practices, our goal is always really partnering with leaders individually, as teams, and as organizations to support their success and truly a bolder future, whether it's developing a leader in place or if it's helping someone make a change to something new outside of the organization. Interesting. And and how many, I guess, before I say how many, do you call them coaches? Do you, do you call the, the folks who are interacting with your clients coaches? Is that the right vernacular? 
Yeah. In the, the practice that I lead, the executive coaching practice, we have recruited 200 plus coaches all over the world that I have personally gone and met. And how the business was established, BPI Group's been around for 35 years. And we began a formal executive coaching practice 11 years ago. The charge that I had when I joined the organization was to build that. And so fortunately, I was able to travel all over the world to help that support that effort. So the coaches that we've recruited, yes, are trained as executive coaches. We also in the rest of the organization have what we call career coaches And then we also have skill-based and leadership coaches that support programmatic content as well. The practice I lead is more focused on that one-on-one relationship and the team relationship. And so, yes, all of those individuals are trained executive coaches. How do you choose the clients that you are going to coach? Because I know your time is limited and we talked a little bit about this in prep, but How do you pick the ones that you're going to work with directly? Yeah, as a practice leader, I focus really on three to five CEO engagements a year along with their executive teams. Sometimes, sometimes you're working with the individual plus the team, sometimes just the team. So either way can work. In addition, because our cadre is so rich, our other coaches focus on CEO assignments as well. So when I think of the ideal client, we're really looking for a willingness and readiness to step into how can I be even more effective? So you don't get to be a CEO without already being very successful, but we look at coaching similar to the way you would in sport, right? Most good athletes have great coaches alongside of them. And they can be coaches that focus on different aspects of who they are. So for us, the ideal client is really someone that is open to listening to feedback about themselves. And it's their own self-reflection, but it's also stakeholder feedback around them that guides informing what's working really well for them and really what tweaks could be made to make them even more effective. What are those things? Like, what are the things that they're trying to make more effective? Yeah. So, you know, I'll give you a couple of examples. Most of us get to where we are in our careers and we believe that the behaviors that we've practiced have made us get to this point. What we are sometimes unaware of are the impact, the impact that we make. We have great intentions, but we're not sure what the impact is. So one area is passion. Passion gets all of us really far, right, in our careers, right? When we believe in what it is we're doing, it carries us. Passion taken to an extreme, though, really can come off in a way that is micromanaging or too much. And so it's it's just this balance, right? It's always, it's typically a really great, great trait, but there's something that is, it's being overused in a way. And that that's very specific. 
a lot of CEOs are looking for a sounding board that's outside of their board, outside of their leadership team, outside of anybody in their realm of day-to-day. And so often the CEO is looking for what else is going on in the world, right? What are your what are you learning from 100 other engagements that you've done at this level that would help inform me to be even more effective? So really as a benefit. So sometimes a specific behavior change, sometimes strictly a benefit or sounding board. Many times it's about shifting a culture and that culture shift starts with the leadership team. So how can I, as a CEO, be demonstrating the behaviors that we want modeled throughout the organization? How do I bring my team along with me on that? And then we become the models or teachers for the organizations in how that is executed throughout or cascaded throughout the organization. Why are we so bad at seeing the impact that we have on other people? Well, I mean, I truly believe that most people, when they pause long enough, most leaders that I've worked with in my 20-year career, we all know what gets in our way. I really do believe that. You, There's a philosophy in coaching that you don't need a coach to figure those things out. If you pause long enough, you know intrinsically what gets in your way. If you are self-reflective enough, right? Yeah. Like when you're, when you're most honest with yourself. Exactly. If you have the emotional intelligence to sit back and say, what truly gets in my way, you can figure it out. You'll figure it out faster with a coach is really what I believe. And I have seen evidence of it in my 20 years of doing this. Without making a big mess. Yeah, without making a big mess and it really proactively. I mean, that's the fabulous part. If you can get in a coaching relationship as you're evolving to leadership, right? As you're growing in your leadership, then you know it's really something you become attuned to and you course correct for yourself, right? You don't need the coach to help you do that. But building the pattern with a coach of how do I do that on a regular basis helps people awaken to what we call their blind spots. All of us have them, O'Brien, right? I mean, no matter how good we are, how well-trained we are, the blind spots for all of us, we don't realize often that impact. And like I said earlier, your intent can be so good, but what the impact is, you need to ask, you know, right? You need to be inquisitive and curious you know, to the people around you to say, how am I showing up? So it takes incredible courageousness to really look, I mean, for all of us. And I think a story from my own career in that, in working with a very senior executive at a public company, spent a little bit of time building trust, doing some assessment work with him that he wanted on the front end. But when I delivered the uh, stakeholder feedback report to him and how he was showing up, he read it, closed it, and handed it back to me and said, none of this is true. And and that is an extreme example. I'm giving you that extreme example of our willingness to look, right? And, And to actually learn from what... So, of course... We wrapped up the meeting. I gave him some breathing space and he called me within a couple of hours saying, Mary, I'm sorry. 
you know, I rejected all that work, right, that you had done and the voices of people that care about me. Let's sit down and review. And I think there's human nature, right? There's an element, even those of us that can say thank you for the feedback when someone gives it to us in the moment, there's a sting. There's always a little sting like, oh, for sure. Yeah, I didn't know I was showing up that way, right? Or coming off that way. So, do you, you know, that's an interesting point. When you're coaching people and you give them, you have one of those sessions where you're going to really, you know, it's going to sting. You're, you're about to hit them and you know, it's going to sting. How do you structure that? Do you build in that space so that the person can hear it process and then you do the work later? Or is there a way to like help them through it and do the work in the same session? We've created a process, O'Brien, that really helps the leader come along to that kind of feedback. And what I mean by that is we approach every leader from a position of of the whole person and that their ability to self-reflect first and really share how they see themselves through what we call a client profile, where they really divulge who they are where they've been in their career, what their goals are, what has gotten in their way, right? So we have them reflect on that first so that they're really, they're telling us those things. Then we do move into what we would call more objective assessment work with them. We do look at personality, you know, what is their dominant personality style? And then we we get the information from what we call key stakeholder feedback, where we're interviewing eight to 10 people around the leader. Fabulous to be able to listen to who works with this CEO day to day, right? And how do they show up? And a, a favorite story is from key stakeholder interview that I had with a limousine driver. So this is a gentleman who had been in the CEO role for five years. And this limousine driver had listened to him talk about his family, his team, his board, how he dealt with the public, because he was often dropping him off at events that were uh, very public events. I often say that all I needed to do was talk to that limousine driver. He was so insightful about what he observed. And again, I think when you take someone through this kind of process, they're guiding themselves. They're owning their own development. So by reflecting on themselves, by going through some assessment, and then by listening, by the time you're listening to what others say about you, You've already done your own self-reflection. You've already had some feedback from an objective assessment. So I think there's a willingness to hear. There's also you've kind of like flexed that muscle a little bit, right? So it's not like you're just it's not like you're going to the gym for the first time. Exactly. Exactly. And O'Brien, something that I think is really important, all of us go through a series of reactions when we hear feedback, right? Shock, anger. Nausea. But, <laughs> nausea, exactly. <laughs> we resist the feedback, you know, we yeah. reject it or yeah. we resist it. And ultimately, we get to an acceptance or hope, you know, around what's possible for me. I now know this about myself. I get to decide what do I want to do about it. And 
you know, with everything we learn, you're not doing something about every single item, but you are selecting what are the things that are going to be most impactful for my success. So it's important, very important. And um, I, we are humbled, as you know, I've spoken with you about before that, you know, it's a very humbling role to play with any leader. It doesn't matter what level, when you are asked to be the partner for someone's success, it is about them. It's not ever about the coach. It's about their success and how do they get there. And the partnership is, it's quite powerful. Yeah. I, I remember hearing a quote goes something to the effect of only when I accept myself as I am, can I change? And that has stuck with me. It came about in kind of an interesting way, but it like, it hit me. And I, I've thought about it a lot over the years. And it's like, I think it's true. You have to really take the blinders off and look at all the good, the bad, the, and the ugly to be able to really change. You know, Absolutely. you can make some modifications, but you're not going to get past those big barriers that are holding you back unless you're brutally honest about what's going on. And that's a vulnerable place to be, right? Very. For for all of us. I uh, in my in my early career, I had the good fortune to work with a global head of communications for an organization, a Fortune 100 organization. And he did not want me around. You know, his, his message to me was, you're lovely, nice to meet you, and I'm really not going to engage in this. And you need to meet that leader where he or she is at, right? And for him, he was rejecting that he could do anything to improve his leadership capability. And I remember so clearly sitting with him at an assessment debrief on a tool that we use that looks at your values and drivers, the bright side of your personality, and also your derailers under stress. And we were walking through the report. We had an expert joining us from the firm really doing the debrief. And a bead of sweat started falling down his sideburn. And I, and I noticed, I noticed, and I said, should we take a break? And he said, yes, please. And we, we, we closed off the phone call and we got up and we took a walk around the campus. And I said, how are you doing? And he said, I just saw my entire career, you know, flash before me as I was listening to the derailers, the, the, the report that was highlighting the derailers. Uh-huh. He was in his 50s at the time. So he, his message was, I wish I would have known this 30 years ago, right? I wish I, and I'm like, well, you can't, you can't, yeah. well, none of us can do that. It's where, wherever you land, but he became a big proponent of this work, right? For himself, for his team. To me, those are the moments in my own career where you truly feel like this makes a difference, right? This is, no one would have bought that this guy was going to do any change. And the changes he was able to do were small, you know, but for him, they were major changes to really adjust his style as he was working with others. And at that level, he was working with the board and his own C-suite team. So anyway. When you you say that his career flashed before his eyes, was it that you were, somebody was highlighting and saying, based on your personality, here are the things, 
here's what trouble could look like and how it would manifest. And he was going, holy shit, I've got a laundry list of these exact examples where I've been frustrated and failed and not been as successful as I wanted to be. I thought it was just luck or whatever, but really it was me. Absolutely. That's wow. exactly it. That's, That's exactly a powerful, it. That's yeah. a powerful moment. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, important to highlight there too, we all want to be leading from our strengths, right? And that that's the easy part of day-to-day for us. And I think for most of us, we will focus on that and minimize those things that are our opportunity, right? But but sometimes what shows up to the audience are the opportunities. They they see that first versus what are our greatest strengths. So anyway. That's great. So curious, you know, you mentioned that you'll do some work with your CEO clients and their teams. And what does that work look like? And how are you taking the work with the CEO and then sort of translating it to the team? And how are you doing that, you know, backwards too? Right, right. So in concert, Many times when a CEO has this kind of experience with coaching, they want their team to go through that same kind of process. So sometimes it's each each leader on the team has their own individual coach as well. But what's very powerful is to put that entire team in a room together and in the world we live in today, in a virtual room together, so that they really deepen their relationship. And what I mean by that is for us to be vulnerable with each other, we have to know each other and we have to care about each other. Bottom line is, you know, we have to care about each other to a degree that we want one another's success or at least ultimately the organization's success. So the work that we do is partnering with the entire team. We get to know what's working on that team, what's not working, what their hopes are for the future. Often, these are teams that are in the midst of great transformation for some reason in their organization. It can be a newer leadership team. We work with a lot of startups, so it can be you know that element as well. And so this gives them the opportunity together to be introspective in the room, but then also to focus on the business result. A big piece of our work is tying coaching to what is the business result that you get out of this. And on a team, it's just incredibly powerful when all of that is happening in the room. Most of the time, what goes on in those activities, it's trust building it's learning how to deal with conflict. We know if there's two of us, there's going to be a conflict at some point when there's six, eight, 10, 12 of us, even more so. So how do we want to line up what was called our conflict norms, right? So that when conflict arises, what are our agreements and how we will work through that conflict? Do you, do you have an example of that? Yes, absolutely. So What we first do in the introspective piece is really getting leaders to understand what their greatest strengths are and also their opportunities. So that's something that's done through the trust building exercises and particularly the vulnerability-based trust. How do I demonstrate that in small ways? So one way would be to share, well, my dominant communication style is a directing style. 
what's your style? And you get that kind of just baseline that sounds very elementary, but how we communicate really is mostly what can get in our way. So if we understand that about each other, that's where it begins. When we get into conflict, what's important to understand there is that we bring our life experience into that executive leadership room. So whatever, how we experience conflict in our homes, through school, through sports teams, through our life, right, growing up, is typically picture eight to 10 different approaches to that. Some of us swept conflict under the carpet. You know, we could say others had very loud, direct arguments in their home. And of course, all different kinds of life experience is talked about through that. And so again, understanding what my past has looked like and how I want to deal with conflict. If I grew up in a loud environment or on teams where the coach was, you know, hit me between the eyes with a feedback, I might have a way that I want to lead now as a, a top leader through conflict. And so we get everyone to participate in what will our conflict norms be? And if you agree on them, then everybody knows, okay, when when we have a conflict, we've agreed that we want to all communicate voice to voice within 24 hours and have a plan forward. That's our agreement. Others say, I need more time than that. I need to focus and really have more time to process the conflict and we'll come back to it. So it's just helping a team get to those norms together and then actually bringing issues into the room and working through them together. So it's one thing to create what that looks like. The other is applying it. And we do that through an action learning exercise where they actually bring a business problem into the room and we work through it together using those new norms that were created. That's interesting. I'd never thought about setting conflict norms. I mean, it's kind of like kindergarten. Well, you know, you where know, you, <laughs> you go in and it's like, so what? So I like I can remember, maybe it wasn't kindergarten, maybe it was like third grade, but I can remember being in a classroom and like the first day of school, it was like, okay, we're all going to agree on the rules. And we came up with the, our rules of how we were going to behave. And it's, a, it's the same thing that you're talking about. Yeah, it is. It is. There's, I think I laugh about that because it seems elementary, you know, as, as we're discussing it, but think about the teams you've been on. And some of these norms are just established naturally, but never spoken to. The world today in leadership teams come, you know, people come from all over the world to sit on this leadership team. So you're bringing in all different kinds of backgrounds to not discuss it seems almost odd, right? That you don't actually have a conversation about it. It's not hard. I mean, it's not hard to do that, but it's taking the time to actually state it. Just do we, it. Yeah. yeah we're big believers. Yeah. And even conversation guidelines, you know, I'm going to have a conversation with you. What guidelines do we want to honor as a team? So an executive team often has very stringent guidelines and someone will say, well, everything we talk about has to be confidential. Well, the gentleman next door or the woman next door might say, no, I, 
I think everything we talk about needs to be shared back to the organization, right? So that's where you start to see the differences. And then how do we agree that what's going to work for this team? And and what it does, O'Brien, more than anything, it's good for the team, but it's modeling for the rest of the organization, right? So that the organization, when they come into a leadership meeting, they see conversation guidelines up on the wall. They see conflict norms. And the best CEOs talk about those. The guest comes into the room. Here's how we honor each other in our meetings. Take a look, right? And they often prep them beforehand as well. But it means that it's being modeled at the top of the house. And I think that there's a lot of integrity in that. And in the case study that we've looked at through our research, we know it just, it cascades into the organization when it's modeled in that way. So it's powerful. I have a, a strengthening belief. I had this thought a, a couple of years ago in every conversation, especially since starting this podcast, almost every conversation just reinforces this. And, and the belief is that we have to be taught how to function well in modern society. It is not an innate skill in almost anybody. And and if it seems innate, it's probably just because they were taught it at a younger age than you were taught it. It's yeah. like when left to our own devices, fear, scarcity, ego, all that stuff, just it just makes us do things that are counterproductive to what our end goals are. And we really do have to be taught how to do this stuff. Yeah, I agree. And, and the whole teacher piece, you know, really resonates. I grew up in a family. My father was a sales and marketing executive. My mother was a a teacher and it was, you know, ingrained in us, right. To always be learning. Education was valued among, you know, really above all else. And I have five, there's five of us, the first four, one year apart. And then my younger brother is three years, my uh, sister younger. And we grew up jumping in a station wagon or no, usually the station wagon and into the cassette player dating myself would be a positive mental attitude tape. And we joke about this, but it so you was, were groomed. For this I, I, I was groomed. I was <laughs> groomed as were my siblings. And I, I, we joke about that because today the five of us somehow teach in our work um, in all different realms, in all different realms, um, literally high school and university professor, but also in business, the, there's three of us that either do training, coaching, or actually own schools. So it's really kind of interesting how I agree with you 100% learning and being taught is something that never ends. And none of this, I always say, I don't want to take away from the work, but it is, it's truly about listening, the pause that we take not only to ourselves, but to those that we're leading and being curious about each other. There's such a focus at the executive level on executing, 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 right? And particularly in a public company, obviously, right? But also startups, you know, privately held, we see it across the board. And this pause to listen, it's just, it's very powerful. And listening is difficult for all of us. So, you know, it has to be taught. I mean, that's, it's the lesson I keep having to learn over and over and over again is just the value of slowing down. 
all the problems that I get into with other people happen when I'm moving too fast. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm 100%, 100% with you, 100% with you on that. So I'm curious, you had mentioned, you know, we're bringing in people from all over the world on these leadership teams. And I was talking with a client of mine who was also a guest on this podcast about cross-cultural communication. What are the best practices if you're working with people from other cultures, in this case, countries, to surface this stuff? Is it just using some of these basic principles like you're talking about and just having these initial conversations? Or is there another level that you have to go to recognize the cultural differences between countries? I think that you need to be studied in it. I mean, I think it's that important to me. I think it's that important to at least understand in an overview way of, you know, what are cultural norms and particularly when we all come in a room together at a very baseline level, O'Brien, be curious enough to ask, you know, to ask people what is, you know, share with me some of your norms growing up in business. What did it look like? How do we look different, right? There's a fabulous guidebook that we use called When Cultures Collide, and it gives you a one-page summary on each country and what norms are. And it's a great starting point before you're going into a conversation just to guide yourself. So I think as a baseline, being curious and asking most people want to share with you their experience. I mean, I, I am a big believer that, you know, um, focusing on the other person, right? And listening, being curious enough to listen can help guide that. In this team optimization work, oftentimes that's why a CEO chooses to have teams come together is they want to reflect those differences. And really on a team, it's borrowing from the best of everyone around the table. And so when you learn through different cultural norms, it's very powerful. And how we're viewed as Americans, right, in that same group. So most recently, two organizations that we've worked with, with nine different countries represented in the room. And it's rare today that you don't see at least a few, right? But nine is a lot. And just fascinating, like how we accept or reject if it's not like the way we do it, right? Yeah. Well, that's the key. And realizing that that our way is just one way. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it's great to be proud of where you're from, but there's so many other ways. And for me personally, joining a global organization that was based in Paris, France originally, today we are based out of Chicago, but I'll never forget those first experiences, you know, of going overseas and into the meetings and really having to adjust as studied as I was, having to adjust my ways, which were outgoing and wanting to get to know people. And they'd always, a comment when I spoke at conferences would be, Mary doesn't need the microphone, meaning she can project without the microphone, right? But often my colleagues overseas were very quiet in their delivery. And so they would need the microphone. But I always would get a kick out of that. Like I'd say testing and they'd be like, you don't need it, Mary. You don't need that. So, so those, again, those are all 
when you are fortunate to have those experiences, right? Or to work with people, oh, the richness of really getting to know what formed their success as a business leader, right? About their culture. It's fascinating. And we it's more that we learn from. So do you find that and this is going to be there are going to be some broad generalizations in this, but do you find that Americans are better, worse, or the same at recognizing that their way is just one way? Like, are we like, I, I, I'll elaborate on that a little bit. Like it, it seems to me like the American exceptionalism sort of makes us a little bit slower to realize that there are a lot of other cultures out there. We're isolated from a lot of other cultures. You know, it's a plane, it's an ocean away, you know, to most of the other cultures in the world. We are such a dominant and have been such a dominant force for so long. Our money is accepted everywhere. Our language is accepted just about everywhere. So do you find that as that, that the Americans that you work with in those intercultural groups have a harder time with it? Or, or does everybody kind of have a harder time and like everybody's like, oh, this is the way I grew up. So this is the way. Yeah, I think it's more the latter. I don't think that in most cases, it's your genuine interest in learning, right? And if you've had the exposure, whether you've stayed in the United States your whole life for your career, right? But have had exposure to all different uh, cultures you often can be much more sophisticated than the person that's on a plane every week, right? Traveling to different cultures, but never really in the culture long enough. I don't think, you know, it depends on the leader. I mean, we've worked with fabulous leaders that have, you know, high emotional intelligence to, you know, everyone in the room. And we've also worked with organizations that are dominantly, you know, based overseas, right? And so the U.S. is where the guest in the room, right? Not necessarily the dominant force. So it depends, right? I hate to answer in yeah. that way, but it, it depends. And, and I think there are classic stereotypes that we speak to that we have to be careful of, right? Because often when I'm getting feedback on a leader that is based in the U.S., who's grown up in the U.S., you'll hear from people overseas, uh, the typical American way, right? And uh, the type A personality, right, that you all are so proud of, right? You'll hear a lot of that. But you'll also hear the flip side of the respect for the other culture as well, right? And trying to learn. I do think it's a learning curve for all of us, right? I mean, it's, again, your own exposure to it. And I wouldn't say that it's one way or the other. It's just that everybody's learning. Everybody's in that process of learning. So, yeah. Well, it sounds like what I'm hearing from that too is it's it's individual, and it's more based on their own level of empathy and their own exposure to the world. Exactly. Exactly. And and sometimes, O'Brien, honestly, when we're doing these team optimization sessions, that's the power of that session is that you hear different cultural norms in in the response of the participants and then you see the reaction on both sides right and so you'll hear a leader saying hey can you let me finish my sentence right can you you know or 
where how I grew up in business was this was the most important value to me, right? And so that's why I want to honor it. What I think is universal is that we're all trying to figure that out, right? I mean, I think that with with that frame of curiosity, you can go a long way, right? Instead of making assumptions, stereotypes, you know, really being curious about somebody else's experience can be quite powerful. Talk for a few minutes about coaching coaches. And because coaches have been more prominent, a lot more leaders, a lot more individuals at all levels are hiring coaches. And I think as if you're a leader or a manager of others, you want to be coaching your people. If you're if you're a good one, I would argue, you want to be coaching your people. But coaching is hard and coaching is its own skill set. So what are the skills that you need to be a good coach? Yeah, I love that question. And we're finding more and more that organizations are looking, how do we create this coaching culture? That's not anything new, but I mean, you're hearing more and more come train us in that. The number one skill, I believe, of a coach is your ability to connect with the leader sitting across from you. And how does connection come? It comes through listening and listening (laughs) and listening. And I'm exaggerating that, O'Brien, but it's really... Most people, you know, when they're coming to you for quote coaching, they they want to be heard. They want their whatever it is that they need to express or need support on. They want you to hear them, and they want you to be open. And then the second is not to rush to solving, but to ask a question. So to and that's where the curiosity comes in, right? So it's listening. And then questioning and not giving the answer. Because most of us think if you, when we, we put leaders in a room, when we do this type of training and we say, how many of you view yourself as coaches? Well, all the arms go up in the room. If you've been in business, right? Or leading people, everybody's like, I'm Mary, I'm naturally a coach, right? I'm not educated as one, but you know, I'm absolutely a coach. Well, then we put them into pods of where they're coaching. We give them the actual you know, guidelines on how to coach. And they shut down the exercise on average within eight minutes because they're directing, they're telling, they're suggesting, they are not coaching. And so I think the misnomer about coaching is that it's just another conversation. It's not. There is a science, there is a process behind what good coaching looks like. And the two that I would highlight, the two skills are listening and questioning. Because guess what? When you ask the question, O'Brien, the leader that you're speaking to often, like I said, with the pause, knows the answer. It's just needs to be drawn out. Now, there's other times where that leader is going to be saying to you, I want your experience, O'Brien. I want you to tell me what's your experience in this situation. That's different. And it's not coaching. Then you're sharing experience with that person, right? And they may make a call based on that. So so how, how do you walk that line? Because I have worked with a number of coaches and I, and I try my best to coach other people where I can. And there's always that moment where you're like, 
I've seen this before so many times. I know what this person needs to do to be successful. And I can't figure out how to ask it as a question, right? Because all you want to do is lead them to water. And it's it's tough to figure out what that right question is. So how how do you in the moment, this might be too complex of a question, but how do you in the moment stop yourself and turn that into a question? Yeah, I don't, I think that, again, it's less about the best coaching is very, there, there's a rhythm to it where you're taking off that coaching hat and putting on a different hat, right? So I'm not suggesting that we would sit with a CEO and just keep asking questions or any, any yeah. leader, right? That you can't offer any advice. It, exactly. It's okay. not, but, but you have to, you really do to honor our profession, which we have, you know, our own guidelines for, you have to make those distinctions between the two. So the, the leader says you've coached, you know, a hundred CEOs, what's been your experience in this arena, right? That's fine to answer that question, but it's not coaching, right? You're sharing experience. So it's not that hard. I mean, honestly, and I know it's what I consider my gift, right? I feel like it's the calling why I'm here in this world, right? Is to use coaching as a tool that just supports success, right? For people. But the the piece of it is really the space that you're holding for that leader to come up with their own answer. The powerful answer is that they solve for it, right? You can give them fish or teach them how to fish type of analogy, right? Let yeah. them. And and again, there's a balance of that in, in any kind of great coaching relationship, the, the trust that you have, the care. There's all kinds of tools today, obviously, as well, right? Compared to when I started in this 20 years ago, what it looks like today, there are a lot of tools that can be supportive and frameworks that we use in training to, to support that. Well, one thing that comes to mind there is I think through my own experience is when you do offer advice or you say, you know, from my experience, here's what you got to do or here's how you could solve that problem, you might be right. But that doesn't mean, and they might be listening, but that doesn't mean they're going to do anything about it. And so like there's, I wonder if there isn't another step after giving advice where you have to then check back in with the person to hear what they heard and then spark their action of what they heard. So, okay, you heard it, you believe it, but are you going to do anything? Does that change anything about what you're going to do today or this afternoon or tomorrow, you know? And and you have to be then queuing back into that person and letting them own it. Even though you're the one who gave the advice, they have to be the one who owns it. Yeah. Is I mean, that I, fair? I, yeah. I think, I, I do think any good coaching, it has to have an action. So when you're done, you know, at the end of a session, it's always, what are you taking away from today? I always say, if every leader in business simply at the end of each exchange said, what are you taking away from our conversation? And what action will you take? We solve so many problems in business, right? Because you're landing the plane. You know, what are you taking away from the conversation? What action will you take? And that helps the coach understand you'll be shocked what you hear from other people, right? You think that the coaching conversation went one way. When you ask those two questions, 
you'll be like, oh my gosh, okay. They had some kind of, you know, epiphany during that conversation that helped them decide what was the action that would come next. So coaching without action, there are times when it is a reflective session more than it is an action session, but it wouldn't be about the advice, O'Brien. It would be more about overall from the coaching conversation today, what's your takeaway? And as to your point, they often would not even talk about that portion that was, quote, advice giving because it's not the true piece that moves where they're at. Well, and to your earlier point, too, about the the CEO who rejected the report and handed it back to you, but then called you a couple hours later, like there, there's an element to coaching, too, I always notice where like you have to be okay that no progress is made in the moment. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and trust that that doesn't mean that progress won't be made. And that's a very hard thing to do. I know I struggle with that, you know, where it's like, you're like, but do you just, will you just see it? Like, can you, uh, and it's like, it can be frustrating. <laughs> and, you know, my wife will, will complain that I can beat a dead horse too much. And I just like, you just want it to get through. But the reality is the lesson I need to learn from this conversation is like, I just need to walk away and trust that it'll sink in as the thought sort of, you know, steeps in her mind. Right. And, and not on our timeline, O'Brien. I think that's the biggest thing. It's not our timeline. It's the, it's the person sitting across from you, their timeline, what's good for them. Now that can't go on too long, right? I mean, you know, you have to be able to start to see the whole point of coaching is that you see the progress, you can measure the results and having a guide to how do you measure the results of coaching is really important. And I think a lot of coaching today exists without any kind of measure like that, which is dangerous, particularly in business that is, you know, we're looking for a result ultimately. So yeah, I think everything is a balance, right? Like too much in the moment and you don't have time to really process and then giving them all the time in the world, you, they're never held accountable to make a change. So it, right. it, there's right. a, there is a sweet spot in there for sure, right. as with just about everything in the world. Yeah. And we're working towards a business goal. I mean, we're hired to achieve some kind of business goal for the organization. It's not, you know, I think I gave the example early about sometimes coaching is used as a benefit, right? Just a sounding board for people. But 99% of the time it's used because we want a business goal out of this. And so that while the leader's being developed and that feels good to be invested in, what are you giving back to the organization as a result of that investment? And I, that was drilled into me very early on in my coaching career by a CFO that I worked with, you know, very powerful. I often say that we're, I'm so fortunate to have learned so much through the business leaders that I had the privilege to work with early on, but there, it has to work both ways. There's that fulcrum that has to be balanced, right? Between my development for growth and promotion and where I want to get to for my big goals, but also the organization's goals. So, well, I appreciate the free coaching here. And <laughs> I, I, what will you take away? What will you take away from our conversation? And <laughs> my, well, so my takeaways, my takeaways are giving people more time and setting some conflict norms or even conversational norms for some of the tougher conversations. Those are two big takeaways. And then 
the the action is asking what are you taking away from this conversation more so that that's something that i'm going to try to put into practice my last question is one that i ask just about everybody what in your mind is the purpose of business for me personally it's exchange of value somehow exchange of value and in the work that we do it's very profound work because as i said earlier we're partnering at a time when someone has been very successful to get to where they're at, right? And that we get to be a partner and exchange value, right? That is, to me, what it's all about. That when when we show up, that there is a value exchange and that you can point to something that's different as a result of us having met. So again, making a difference. You know, I think it's so important in the world today, especially the world that we're living in today, that the the meaningfulness and purpose of our work is crystal clear, right? And that our, you know, that we 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 are supportive of the leaders that we serve in their success and how that impacts the leader, the team, the organization can be profound. The um a story from my own career, I had the privilege to work with a leader out of New York who was in line to take on a C-suite role. And he was struggling, but did not see the, he, he could not hear the feedback he was getting from the organization. And I had the privilege of meeting him. And I was at this point in my career where it was a big milestone. It was a, a Wall Street firm. And I'm at their offices in the um, old uh, trade center building and, you know, looking out at the Statue of Liberty and the Hudson and thinking, here I am, I'm so privileged to be here. And in comes this gentleman, slams his books down and says, this is complete nonsense. And I I turned around from my high, (laughs) from my career high and said, you must be. And I said his name. And a year later, this is a gentleman that rejected any kind of work that was introspective like this. But a year later, I arrived to my office and there was a voicemail from his wife. I had never met her. And she said that she had my phone number from a business card and that, you know, whatever happened in the coaching session she had her husband back, her children had their father back, and that he had received a promotion that day. And she was calling to say thank you. From what, and, was that just one coaching session? No, that was that was a year. Oh, I was going to say, you are good. No, that was a year, not a year. Not, not one. I mean, one not year, one. you're still good. You're still good. A year <laughs> exactly. for that kind no, of it was a year. Good. It was a year. And, okay. And, but that's the kind, O'Brien, that's what it matters, right? You know, it's not just, it's about he got so confident about who he was, right? Through this introspection, through being vulnerable, which is a requirement for any kind of great leadership, it, you have to have some vulnerability. And um, he was successful and it impacted not just his work, but his whole life. And that to me is what matters, right? For all of us, it's what I want for myself you know, that my colleagues that I work with are teams of coaches, right? That you get to be that partner in the value exchange. What a gift, right? So 
anyway. Mary, this has been a fantastic conversation. Really interesting topic I think will be helpful for people. And I encourage anyone out there who is trying to get better to go out and get help and you know find a coach who can help you get there. So Mary, really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, O'Brien. A privilege. Thank you. Be well. Hey, folks, one last thing before you go. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Thanks for coming. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.